everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm Katie Helper, so excited to be here and to be joined by none other than Leslie Lee. So we have a great show for you guys today. And uh, we are going to be talking to John Kiriakou, who is a former CIA analyst. And, you know, the good news, guys, is that when something bad happens, you want people to be held accountable, right? Held responsible. We all know and hate the CIA torture program. And the good thing is that someone went to jail over that. The bad thing is that the person who went to jail over that is the person who blew the whistle on that which is a pretty Orwellian thing to to think about. And that's who our guest is tonight. And he's someone who was a CIA analyst. He's a whistleblower. He's the author of several books. And he is one of the best sources on 9-11, pulling out of Afghanistan, things like that. But sadly, he's not sought out by the mainstream media. So you wouldn't see him on MSNBC, on CNN. In fact, he's going to share some stories about how he's treated by those networks, which... Uh, interestingly enough, is not in a particularly appropriate professional way. Before we bring uh, John in, Leslie, how was your week and any updates that you like to share, either from your personal life or political life? Well, this weekend, I got to watch former President Trump celebrate the 20th anniversary of September 11th by calling a freak show boxing fight. President Donald Trump, yes, that that Donald Trump, former president, was actually commentating. Uh, he spent the day in New York, but then he flew down to Florida to do some commentary on this boxing show headlined by the 58-year-old Evander Holyfield being TKO'd by Vitor Belfort in a really, really, a match that probably should not have legally be allowed to take place because Evander Holyfield, even though he's in amazing shape, um, not he's 60 years old. He's an old man. He's just an old man. And to see Donald Trump there commenting on it and it, his commentary was so bizarre because even though he goes to all these boxing events, he doesn't know anything about it. You know, that old trope about like how, oh, uh, in a, like a sitcom, like the wife will watch football and she'll just start cheering for the team with the most with the most attractive uniforms. Mm -hmm. That's how Trump approaches like boxing. Uh, he keep, even though he's been going for 20 years, he still keeps talking about like he kept talking about during the event like, oh, that guy, he looks so beautiful. He's in such great shape. Like he must be winning, right? He literally asked the MMA guys, like, how come like sometimes the most attractive fighter doesn't win? Like he he did not understand that the hottest guy doesn't isn't always going to win uh, the fight. He didn't understand Well, that's that. because he is a winner. 
he won the presidency. So he hit the lesson he learned is the hot guy wins. Yes. Yes. And that's why he was so sad about losing to Biden. Cause exactly. I think he has an argument. I think he has an argument. That, hey, maybe he's a little bit hotter than Biden. Oh my gosh. I don't know. I, I can't even, you that's don't terrible. Even want- would you rather? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I know. That's like that or, or cutting off my leg. I'm not sure which of those three scenarios. Yeah, but it was a it was a fun show, but very strange, like culturally, because Triller Fights is like this is like a like some kind of sort of like scam that all these celebrities are invested in. I don't know. I'm sure there's Saudi money involved, but like they're appealing to the MAGA crowd with Trump. But they're also like their whole promotion is like very like youth leaning and like hip hop oriented. So it's like also trying to advertise to like young black kids and Hispanic kids while also like having like that old like white people who like Donald Trump want to buy and see. It was very, very, very strange like mashup of these cultures that uh, you could watch for $50. And I, I couldn't think of a better way to celebrate to, you know, to, it was America. It was America. Right. A woman interrupted the 10 bell salute for September 11th victims and started screaming. And most people assume she was screaming, screaming at Donald Trump because the camera was on Trump and it was, he was trying to look his most somberest, uh, with there and Donald Jr. was there too. Um, and but the woman was actually screaming because she didn't want to wear a mask. What? <laughs> she was screaming about the mask. I don't even know if she had to wear a mask because most people weren't wearing masks. I think she was just screaming about the mask restrictions existing. That's how mad about she was. The Holocaust. Yeah, she was literally at slavery like, and the Holocaust combined is the mask mandate. Yeah, so it was like she was so she was at this event with Donald Trump during a 9-11 tribute, very somber. Um, and she was still so mad about the fact that in some places there's a mask mandate that she felt the need to interrupt it in front of the person who I'm sure she voted for twice. Like, like it was, it looked like a good moment for him. Like that some, he get to, he got to be there and be very somber. And then this woman just starts screaming bloody murder about something or another while Trump's there. Very embarrassing uh, night, at least at the start, because he was really not into the fights. He was like exhausted at like 6 p.m. He did not want to be there until he was joined by like some actual fighters, uh, a fighter named Jorge Masvidal and then Junior Dos Autos. They're both like MAGA, <laughs> like MMA fighters. And he talked about like, oh yeah, these guys helped me win Miami by 30 points. First time Republicans ever done that. And he got, so when he, they replaced like the MMA commentators who are just these like nerds with like the hot, MMA fighters, Trump started getting really into it and excited wow. about it. it was, what do you think it is? He just like he likes being around hot fit guys. He's very much like uh, Vince McMahon uh, in a sense. Vince McMahon also thought that the hottest uh, guy should always, uh, buffest guy should win every fight. That's why he did pro wrestling to make that uh, a true you know, story, but Trump wants it in MMA and boxing and he's confused by why that doesn't happen. So Trump knows wrestling, but not boxing. Is that correct? Well, or does he Trump, not know wrestling he does, either? He does, well, he's very good at wrestling. I think, how do I say this about Trump? He is a natural heel, a natural yeah. heel. And can you remind not people like me what heel is? 
So a heel is a bad guy in wrestling and a face is a good guy. And so Trump is just kind of a natural heel. Like he knows how, like, and a heel's point is to uh, get the get people mad at them, right? So the matter you get at a heel, you're just responding to the the more you boo the heel, the better he's doing at his job, and the happier he is. Oh, like trolls? They're like yeah. Trolls. Well, yeah, kind of. But that's the key thing to understanding. Like that's what kayfabe's all about. Like you think that when you Everyone go in there, kayfabe is kayfabe just means fake. It's kind of the you know the idea that. You know, wrestling is taking place and is the matches are predetermined, right? Yeah. So when you go that down there and boo, you know, Roddy Piper and yell at him, you're not hurting his feelings. That's what he wants you to do. That's yeah. his job. If you stop going to do that, then Roddy Piper loses his job. And so uh that helps with understand politics because you know, lots of things Trump did piss people off, but it's like he wanted people to be pissed off about that. Or yeah. that's all it's all part of the show, I, I would say. Trump versus Biden celebrity presidential death match. That would be good. <laughs> Before we bring on the guests, I just want to show this is this is when I think of Trump and wrestling, this is what I think of. Remember this tweet? Oh yeah. That he does know pro wrestling. He did do. I've, he did do a very sloppy lariat move. He's is not a very good move. What's See, that he, move? That's called a lariat, but he doesn't do it well. You're supposed to do more force so that when you hit the person with your arm, they're going down. Like he kind of falls on top of the guy. Mm-hmm. Kind kind of just falls on top of him. Yeah. So it's not it's not a very good Larry. In fact, one of the earliest episodes of Struggle Session, which you can find at patreon.com slash struggle session, we invited an actual real life championship pro wrestler, Nicole Matthews, to uh evaluate Trump's uh wrestling ability. And frankly she did not she was not impressed. Oh okay. So that wasn't good wrestling that he did there. Yeah, see, we tried to take Trump down very early on. People should have listened to us. We told, we tried to tell people that he was bad at pro wrestling, and nobody listened to us. We we tried to stop him. He never would have been elected. And as goes uh, pro wrestling, goes being president over the United States. So that should have been a warning. You tried. We all did our best yes. to take him down. Um, speaking of uh, Patreon, uh, I want to thank everyone who supports this show on Patreon, both of them actually, <laughs> in real time at the same time. So that's the show so far. Our guest tonight is John Kiriakou, a former CIA analyst and former case officer and former counterterrorism consultant and whistleblower exposing, after he left the CIA, the illegal and immoral torture policy practiced by the U.S. government during the Iraq war saying that the CIA tortured prisoners, that torture was official U.S. government policy, and that the policy had been approved by then-President George W. Bush. He became the sixth whistleblower indicted by the Obama administration under the Espionage Act, a law designed to punish spies. He served 23 months in prison as a result of the revelation. Kiriakou won the Penn Center USA's prestigious First Amendment Award in 2015, the first Blueprint International Whistleblowing Prize for Bravery and Integrity in the Public Interest in 2016, and the Sam Adams Award for Integrity and Intelligence, also in 2016. Kiriakou is the author of The Reluctant Spy, My Secret Life in the CIA's War and Terror, Doing Time Like a Spy, How the CIA Taught Me to Survive and Thrive in Prison, The Convenient Terrorist, and Abu Zubaydah and the Weird Wonderland of America's Secret Wars. So without any further ado, let us bring onto the stream John Kiriakou. Hello. Hey, thanks for having me, Katie. Of course. Thank you so much for joining. 
Well, it's my pleasure. And thanks to everybody. I can't believe how many people are already on and commenting. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, people are really excited that you're here. And you should be on every network, um, (laughs) but surprisingly (laughs) uh, are not. This is a time when people like you should be sought after. There are not that many people like you, though, but you should be sought after. You know, you're someone with inside knowledge who's actually willing to talk about these things in ways that are honest. But that's also exactly why you're not asked to talk. You know, I don't I don't want to sound cynical, but all these networks have their have their retired four star generals that they need to put on uh, the air. And um, and it's it's funny. After I after I blew the whistle. Uh, I was frozen out of of the big news networks. And then a couple of times I had invitations from CNN, once from MSNBC, the Ari Melber show. And then when Trump got elected, um, I was getting more requests from Fox than I could handle. And it was because they wanted me to jump up and down and yell about the Obama administration uh, waging a war on whistleblowers. So, you know, that was that was one of those points where the enemy of my enemy was my friend. But as soon as Donald Trump left, then that was the end of it with Fox, too. Well, lucky for us, lucky for the Katie Halper show, we have a near monopoly. (laughs) Can you tell people about how you wound up in prison? Yeah. Because there's like so many twists and turns, but I, I just mm-hmm. think it's important to remember that you are the person, the one person in prison over the CIA torture program. So yeah, the only one. Um, yeah, uh, I I led a raid in Pakistan on on the night of March twenty second, two thousand two. That resulted and at this in the point you were the C- you were what? Yeah, uh, I was CIA the what? I was the chief of CIA counterterrorism operations in Pakistan. Okay. I had gotten to Pakistan in January of 2002. So we had just finished bombing Tora Bora. And my big claim to fame there, I, I guess I can say it now because almost 20 years have passed, was we had these CIA officers all the way up and down the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I said that that was really, really inefficient, that we should pull everybody off the border, bring them into the cities, let the terrorists come into the cities, and then we know they're going to make a mistake because they're always going to make a mistake. Then we hit the safe house and we grab everybody at once. And that actually worked. And so we caught many dozens, I'm not allowed to say the number, of alleged uh, al-Qaeda terrorists that night, including Abu Zubaydah, who we believed at the time was the number three in al-Qaeda. He was not the number three. He was not even a member of al-Qaeda. He was a bad guy. He had founded al-Qaeda's two training centers in or training camps in southern Afghanistan. He had founded what they called the House of Martyrs in Peshawar, Pakistan. It was the safe house that al-Qaeda used there. Uh, to bring people into and out of Afghanistan. And he was kind of a logistics guy for al-Qaeda. If you needed a passport, you needed a ticket, you wanted to go fight, or you were tired of the fight and you wanted to go home, Abu Zubaydah was your guy. That's who you went to. So we caught him. And uh, my orders that night were to sit with him in the hospital. A Pakistani policeman had shot him three times with an AK-47 in the groin, the stomach, and the uh, thigh. And so my orders were not to leave his bedside. So I I tore up a sheet, I tied him to the bed, and I sat there. 
and we talked a lot. And I said to him at one point, listen, I'm going to give you some advice. I am the nicest guy that you're going to meet in this experience. I said, my colleagues, they're not nice like I am. So if there's one thing that you have to do, it's that you have to cooperate. And he said, you seem like a nice man, but you're the enemy and I'll never cooperate. Well, finally, the CIA sent in a, a, an unmarked private jet to pick him up. Uh, three FBI agents and I carried him out on a gurney to the plane. We maneuvered him onto the plane. We put him on the luggage rack at the back, we tied him down, and he squeezed my hand. And I said, remember, you have to cooperate. But he was very upset. He, he cried a lot. He said he would never know the touch of a woman. He would never know the joy of fatherhood. And I said, listen, you're not the victim here. There were 50,000 people in those towers. What did you think we were going to do? Did you think we wouldn't try to find you or to find bin Laden? And he said, I never wanted to attack the United States on September 11th. All I ever wanted to do was to kill Jews, he said. He wanted oh. to attack Israel. Nice guy, right? <laughs> you, yeah. So um, I said, your life is over. What's left of it can be easy or it can be terrible. The choice is yours. Now, I, I said that, but I really didn't know what the CIA had in store for him. I didn't know that while this was all taking place at headquarters, they were coming up with this torture program. So uh, I got back to CIA headquarters in May of 2002, and I was asked if I wanted to uh, be the words were trained in the use of enhanced interrogation techniques. I had never heard the term before. So I asked what it meant. And this senior officer, after excitedly saying, we're going to start getting rough with these guys, he told me what they meant. And I said, ooh, I don't know, man. I said, that, that sounds like a torture program. No, he said, it's not a torture program. It was approved by the Justice Department and the White House. I said, yeah, I don't think I'm interested. I actually consulted a senior officer and he's like, buddy, he said, run screaming from the room. This is a terrible mistake. So I went back down and I said, I am not interested in this. I think it's immoral. It's unethical. And it's certainly illegal. I actually got passed over for promotion because I turned it down. So um, I went about my business. I got promoted because of Abu Zubaydah. I became the executive assistant to the CIA's deputy director for operations. And so I was able to follow the whole uh, torture program as it was playing out. But what we were reading at headquarters was actually a lie. What was really happening was that Ali Sufan, an FBI agent with whom I had worked in Pakistan, um, and other FBI interrogators had actually gotten Abu Zubaydah to start talking. And they did that the way they've been doing that since the Nuremberg trials in 1945 by establishing a rapport, by being respectful, by offering him, you know, an orange or a cigarette or, you know, a piece of paper and a pencil so he could write to his mother, which he was really, really worried about. He was very worried that his mother would, you know, think the worst. And um, make sure she knows that I just wanted to kill Jews. Yeah, yes. And, and she was so 
proud of him. After we we captured him, she immediately ran to the media and she said that she wished that all of her sons and she had like nine sons. She wished that all of her sons could have made jihad against the Americans like Abu Zubaydah did. Wow. It's like you might want to tell your mom to stop talking. Yeah. Wow. So, Um, yeah, I mean, for the sake of his siblings, that's just so much pressure. Yeah. Well, I was so appalled by this torture program. I, I left the agency and I kept waiting for somebody to go public. It was just so egregious. I thought, surely somebody is going to go public and say something. And nobody did. Well, I let time pass. And then finally, in um, in December of 2007, um, I said something in an interview to Brian Ross at ABC News. As you might imagine, the very next day, the CIA filed what's called a crimes report against me with the FBI saying that I had revealed classified information. And this is where it gets weird. Um, The FBI investigated me from December of 07 to December of 08, and then they closed the case and they sent my attorneys a declination letter, meaning they were declining to prosecute me. So my my then wife and I were so happy that we actually went out to dinner and celebrated that night that, that this nightmare was over. But three weeks later, when Barack Obama was inaugurated and John Brennan became the deputy national security advisor for counterterrorism, my troubles began anew. John and I were not friendly. I had worked directly for him. And then when I went up to the seventh floor as the executive assistant, John was the executive director of the CIA, the number three ranking officer in the CIA. And he was one of the fathers of the torture program. And so he asked the Justice Department to secretly reopen the case against me. I had no idea that for the next three years, my phones were tapped, my emails were intercepted, and teams of FBI agents would periodically surveil me. And then in January of 2012, I was arrested and charged with five felonies, including three counts of espionage. Now, mind you, espionage sometimes carries with it the death penalty. Um, But I had the greatest lawyers in Washington. I hadn't committed espionage. Those charges were eventually dropped. But uh, in the end, I had to take a deal to make the whole thing go away. Um, They were threatening me with 45 years. They offered me two. And I actually turned down the two because I said, I haven't done anything wrong. And my lawyers said, look, this study had come out from uh, ProPublica in October of 2012. It said that the federal government wins 98.2% of its cases. So I had a 1.8% chance of winning. I said, if I lose, realistically, what am I looking at here? And they said, realistically, 12 to 18 years, take the deal. And so I took the deal. You know, there's this, there's this joke that everybody in prison is innocent. I met a lot of people in prison who were actually innocent. But when they have essentially the rest of your life hanging over your head and they're offering you a fraction of that to plead guilty, people plead guilty. You got to make the thing go away. One of the things, this will be my last thought on this issue. One of the things that one of the lawyers told me, and this was the lawyer that I liked and trusted the most. I had 11 lawyers, if you can imagine. He said, this can be a blip in your life or it can be the defining event of your life. Make it the blip. And so I took the deal. 
Wow. So can you tell us more um, b- before we, we move forward to what's happening today mm-hmm. about what you learned from Abu Zubaydah? Abu Zubaydah. Mm-hmm. Abu Zubaydah. Uh, what, what you learned from him, how you learned what you learned from him and what insight that gave you into what I guess was behind for some people the vitriol against the United States and Israel. Yeah, good question. So Abu Zubaydah taught us a lot. Uh, There were two things that were the most critical that came from Abu Zubaydah. First of all, the guy had a mind for detail that I've rarely come across in my career. Abu Zubaydah gave us Al-Qaeda's wiring diagram, which we just never knew. We knew that Osama bin Laden was the number one, that uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri had, had been the number two, he, now he's the number one, and that Muhammad Atta uh, was the head of what they called military affairs. And, and we killed him. Uh, I'm sorry, Muhammad Atef, sorry. We killed him in October of 2001. We just didn't know anything else about al-Qaeda. We didn't know how it was structured. We didn't know where it was. And so Abu Zubaydah said, and I'm going to use this as an example. He didn't say these specific words. What he said was still, or is still classified, but to give you an idea, we would ask him, if, if I wanted to carry out an attack in, let's say, Dusseldorf, how would I do that? And he said, well, in Dusseldorf, there's this guy, Muhammad, and here's his phone number. And Muhammad knows this other guy, Abdullah, and Abdullah's really good with bombs. And Abdullah has this email. And Abdullah's cousin is a guy named Rashid, and Rashid has access to weapons. And this is the address where Rashid keeps the weapons. So we call the Germans and we'd say, hey, you have a problem in Dusseldorf. And here's the information we have. And then the Germans raid these addresses and they grab Muhammad, Abdullah, and Rashid. And, you know, lives were saved. So um, that was the one thing that he was really great at. The other thing that he was really great at, and it was dramatic, was we had never heard of Khalid Sheikh Muhammad. We just never heard the name before. We knew that there was this guy going by the nom de guerre Mukhtar. And we knew that Mukhtar had been the mastermind of what was supposed to be called the Bojinka operation. The Bojinka operation in 1996 was a plot to hijack something like a half a dozen 747s in Manila and then fly them into buildings up and down the west coast of the United States. Uh, Word of this plot leaked and we were able to break it up along with the Filipinos. But all we knew is that it was a guy named Mukhtar. So when he mentioned Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, we, we didn't know who that was. And he laughed and he said, you don't know Mukhtar? And that was the first time that we were able to understand that Mukhtar was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, which then gave us a target, right? We have these targeting analysts at the CIA who um, whose job it is to pour through thousands hundreds of thousands of pages of data to try to locate somebody. 
You know, most CIA analysts, their job is to think the big thoughts and write a paragraph and write a second paragraph of analysis and then send it to the White House and hope that, you know, the the deputy assistant to the president for whatever reads it and then you influence policy. This is a completely different job. This is, there's a guy named Ahmed Shmahmed. I don't know where he is. We need to kill him. You have to find him. And then that's it. You know, they, they send you, go to NSA, you go to FBI, you, you just use what's called all source intelligence to try to geolocate somebody so we can either grab them or, um, or kill them. And so they put the targeting analysts on Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and two months later he was in our custody. So that was the value of, of Abu Zubaydah. And I'll add one other thing about Abu Zubaydah and I feel very strongly about this. Abu Zubaydah has never been charged with a crime. Never. Not in the United States, in any federal district, not in the military tribunal at Guantanamo. Whether we like this guy's politics or not is irrelevant. What is relevant is that he has constitutional protections. And so either we're a nation governed by the rule of law and by this living, breathing constitution that we're all so proud of, or we're not. And if you're not going to charge him with a crime, you have to let him go. Now, he's been in our custody for almost 20 years. It's going to be 20 years on March the 22nd. And he's never been charged with a crime. And that's after going through unspeakable torture, including where he was, he was taken into surgery without his consent and had his eye removed. So we've, we've really done what? a number on this guy. Oh, yeah. For any reason? He had hurt his eye um, fighting the Soviets. And so he had one brown eye and one eye that was really, really pale blue because he had taken some shrapnel. David Bowie. He couldn't see from that eye, but, you know, it never bothered him. And so we drugged him one day, and when he woke up, he had no eye. <sighs> what was the – was that just a power move? Yeah, it was just – yeah. I mean, Like a sadistic move? Like a yeah. Control- that's it was. so disgusting. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. That's why he, we gave I mean, him a— I know I sound so naive. We're talking about the CIA, the CIA and also torture, but still, that deep— Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's why he refuses to wear a glass eye. When you see pictures of him now, it's always with an eye patch. Yeah. Yeah, he refuses. They gave him a glass eye, and he said, absolutely not. Because he, like, wants to, to be in people's faces, what happened? What, what we did to him. Mm-hmm. And how destroyed are these people's minds? Just for Machiavellian reasons, wouldn't we want to not torture these people so that they would be useful resources for information? Yes. Oh, my God. One of the things that that we learned very quickly is torture just simply doesn't work. Right. It doesn't Besides work. The moral, ethical stuff. But right. so, yeah, forget the whole moral, ethical, legal question. Um, it just simply doesn't work. A... Uh, 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 a person who's being tortured will tell you anything that that person thinks you want to hear, whether it's true or not, just to get you to stop torturing them. So they will give you this data dump of information that you're going to have to then assign an army of analysts to go through to figure out what's true and what's not true. 
Well, there might be something true in there. There's definitely stuff that's not true in there. And you've just wasted all these resources and six months. Now, there's this, what they call the ticking time bomb theory, right? There's a bomb that's getting ready to go off in some American city. We don't know where. We need the information, like on Fox's 24, and we got to torture the guy to get the information. That's not real life. That doesn't happen ever in real life. Let's say you torture the guy. He says the bomb is in Chicago, Los Angeles, Seattle, Houston, San Antonio, and Philadelphia. Okay, now what do you do? He just said there are bombs all over the country. Now you got to figure out what was true and what wasn't true. And by the time you figure it out, the bomb went off and killed everybody. And that's besides the moral, legal, and ethical issues. Did you witness any of this or did you just know about this? No. When I turned down the uh, the torture training, um, I, I was just cut off, right? I got passed over for promotion. I, I They gave me the, this nickname, the human rights guy, which was not a compliment. Right. And so what nobody expected was that, that six weeks later, I was going to get promoted and go up to the seventh floor as the executive assistant. And in that position, I had access to literally everything that the CIA was doing around the world. And that was just at the time that they started torturing him. So I got to see it. And I I mentioned a few minutes ago, and I didn't explain myself, that what we knew or thought we knew at the CIA was a lie. The truth is that Ali Soufan, the FBI agent, had established this rapport with Abu Zubaydah and Abu Zubaydah opened up and he was giving us that Dusseldorf-like information. The CIA was furious that the FBI had primacy over this case. Now, the FBI had primacy because 9-11 was still an open criminal investigation. But historically, whenever something is going on overseas, the CIA is in charge. Whenever something is going on domestically, the FBI is in charge. So here we were overseas at this secret location and the FBI is in charge. And that enraged the CIA leadership. I can't, I can't explain enough how deeply the CIA and the FBI hated each other. Mm. We hated each other so much that we didn't speak to one another and our computer systems weren't even compatible. And, and this, is the, this is the operative point. Ali Soufan was getting all this intelligence from Abu Zubaydah. He was writing it all up and sending it to the FBI, right? The CIA had no idea that this stuff was being reported because the FBI wasn't sharing it. And so George Tenet, who was the CIA director at the time, went to President Bush and asked President Bush to withdraw the, um, the FBI from the secret site and let the CIA take over. Now, why Bush agreed to do that, he's never explained. But the FBI was pulled out, the CIA took over, and within two hours, they began torturing Abu Zubaydah. Well, what did he do? He completely went silent. He just clammed up and stopped telling his interrogators anything at all. So what these two CIA contractors did, uh, Mitchell and Jessen, uh, is they found Ali Soufan's FBI reports. They retyped them in the CIA database and said, oh my God, we waterboarded him one time 
And look what he gave us. All this intelligence. Somebody call the Germans. We got to save Dusseldorf, right? Mukhtar is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Oh my God. And I said to a friend of mine, when the report came in, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I've been on my high horse about this being, you know, a terrible policy and, and it doesn't work. Maybe it does work. That doesn't make it moral or ethical. But I mean, they're telling us, he, look at the, what he gave us. He gave us the kitchen sink. Well, that was all a lie. He had already given it to Ali, to Ali Sufan. We didn't know that that was a lie until the CIA Inspector General's report was declassified in 2009, if you can imagine. And we gave Mitchell and Jessen $108 million of the taxpayers' money to come up with this torture program. That's a crime. So just to, to clarify, the CIA got the program taken away from the FBI they used the information that the FBI had already gotten from them. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then pretended that it was the result of their interrogation yeah. to justify. Because they knew them. nobody would, would check. The hatred was so deep between the CIA and the FBI and the computer systems weren't compatible. They knew that nobody would check and nobody did. How many like disasters happened because of that lack of it sounds like a dating show or something, that lack of compatibility between the yeah. CIA and the FBI. But seriously, like. Well, well the big one, the big one was 9-11, right? The, the CIA knew that there were these guys who meant to attack us inside the United States. They even had several of their names, their actual names. Including Osama bin Laden, right? Including Osama bin Laden. But I'm speaking specifically of the hijackers themselves. Oh, wow. Okay. We had, we had some of their names. We knew that they were planning this massive major attack and the FBI never told us that they were in the United States. And the FBI didn't say anything because the FBI believed that they were recruitable. And so they didn't want the CIA stepping on their promotions. You know, if you recruit somebody, you're gonna get promoted. You're gonna get a medal, you'll get an award. The last thing you want is the CIA coming to grab your people. And so, you know, both sides fell asleep at the switch. It's so disgusting. It's, it's a little different now. Now there's an FBI agent who's the deputy director of the CIA's uh, counterterrorist center. And there's a CIA officer who's the deputy director of the FBI's counterterrorist center. And people do rotations back and forth. You know, maybe you'll spend a year at the CIA and I'll spend a year at the FBI and you know, we all go out for beers together on Friday nights. That's supposed to fix everything. Also disgusting in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, you have that with the media. Oh, my God. The situation with the media is, is worse than most Americans have any idea. You know, there used to be this thing called Operation Mockingbird. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.